It's Friday, May the 7th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. But while I'm the only fellow who has that title, I'm not the only podcaster at the Hoover Institution. There's Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, the Grumpy Economist with John Cochran, the Libertarian with Richard Epstein, Law Talk with Richard Epstein and John Yu, the Pacific Century with John Yu and Misha Oslin, and Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, and yours truly. That's actually a uh, audio portion of a video show we do each week. Want to subscribe to any of these podcasts? Very simple. Go to our website, which is www.hoover.org. Click on the Publications tab, then click on where it says Podcast, and you can subscribe to any or all of them. Um, I find they're just great listening for when you're going on a long car ride or a long play ride, as I was last week, just a long walk. You can also sign up for Hoover's monthly Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox uh, each month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest on today's show is the aforementioned John Yu. John is a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution and a professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. As I mentioned, John co-hosts Hoover's Pacific Century podcast with Nisha Oslin, and he goes toe-to-toe law prof, law prof with Richard Epstein on Law Talk. John's also an author. His book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, was published last summer. John, welcome back to the podcast. And here we are a summer later talking yet again about the fight for power. This time it's a question of Donald Trump's ability to be on the Facebook platform. Um, This raises a lot of interesting questions to me, John. It's uh, the role Facebook can do in banning and censoring people. There are First Amendment questions here. Um, So, John, I'd like to start with really three basic questions here. Question number one being, how did Trump end up in this situation? Question number two is what Facebook is doing to him right now, legal. And then third, just possible legal and legislative recourses, given what happened. So, John, why don't we just start with a little background? How did Donald Trump end up in a a timeout, if you will, with Facebook? (laughs) Well, Bill, thanks for having me back. Even though I co-host these other podcasts, this is the only Hoover podcast where I get a word in edgewise, I'd like to say. <laughs> you, you try you try being co with Richard Epstein or Misha Oslin. <laughs> it builds character. It's not easy. It builds character. <laughs> okay, so the background, so Facebook's oversight yep. board um, puts Donald Trump in a timeout. Why do they do this? Right. So it's uh, similar to Donald Trump's ban by Twitter, too. Uh-huh. Uh, Which I want to get to later on the show. Okay. Uh, basically, as uh, we all know, on January 6th, during the week, the counting of the electoral votes for president, which has pretty much been a ceremonial affair, except for two elections in our history, 1800 and 1876. The states, right, they pick the electors, the electors send their votes, they go off to Washington, the vice president opens them in front of Congress. Now, on that day, President Trump had a rally. And at that rally, he attacked Pence, he attacked the states, he attacked Congress. Uh, before a large crowd. And then he said things like, you have to keep fighting. And according to Facebook that and Twitter, that statement helped incite the mob that was collected there in front of the White House to attack the Capitol. There was an insurrection and an effort to stop the county electoral vote. As you remember, the Congress and the vice president had to be evacuated. A few people died, many were injured. And because of that, Facebook, uh, at least temporary, and this part of the issue here is at least temporarily, it seems, right. banned Trump. It may be a permanent ban. Facebook hasn't decided yet. Right. And what the oversight board was doing is it was revisiting the temporary ban, right? And then it extended the temporary ban 
but then it basically handed it off to Mark Zuckerberg and said, you decide what to do, right? It's actually worse than that, I think. I actually think this is a stunning uh, defeat for Trump. Uh, the only thing they really disagree about is whether the ban should be permanent or temporary. But right. on every other issue, uh, this oversight board, which is really, you know, which is colloquially called the, you know, the Supreme Court of Facebook and actually has uh, as one of its co-heads, another Hoover fellow, Mike McConnell, who's a Stanford law professor and a, right. a former judge and a friend. He uh, he's one of the co-heads of this. Uh, they were they essentially agreed. Not essentially. They did, I think, squarely agree with Facebook's substantive decision. You know, that what we think in the law is the merits. Did Facebook have grounds to ban Trump, to stop his speech, to censor his speech? And on that one, there was no dispute. In fact, there, there was a small minority on the court, on this court that wanted to go even farther than Facebook did in the end. So the only thing that this court said was wrong with what Facebook had done was to say, well, you didn't tell Trump how long his ban was for. It's right. indefinite. That seems unfair to us. So you tell them it's either temporary or you could make it permanent. Under the decision that this court issued, Facebook could just say, ah, yeah, the hell with it. We're just going to ban Trump forever. Right. So this is a so this board is actually it's the world court, John, but not with the capital W and a capital C. But 20 <laughs> members of them, uh, they represent 18 countries, John, on six continents. They speak between them. The New York Times waxed wonderfully on this the other day. So <laughs> they did uh, apparently between the 20 of them, they speak 27 languages uh, among the members. Two people who are reportedly on presidential shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court, along with a Yemeni Nobel Peace Prize laureate, a British Pulitzer winner. Columbia's leading human rights lawyer, a former prime minister of Denmark. Uh, John, this is not the Federalist Society, is it? <laughs> well, it's not America either. Right. <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, I think what, Americans, I think, would be shocked if they actually sat down and read the opinion that uh -huh. this court issued, because they would discover that their speech is now governed by not just this collection of you know, non-judges, non-lawyers, non-Americans, but the law they imposed was not American law. Right. There was no analysis of this under free speech principles that we are familiar with from the First Amendment, even if you could say Facebook's not the government, so they aren't bound by the First Amendment, you would think an American company where its workers are in America, the headquarters are in America, was born in America, funded by Americans, that they would at least apply the principles that we stand for. But no, instead, if you read through the opinion, you will be shocked to learn that Facebook is governed by UN treaties, European conventions, something called the Rabat Declaration, which the United States has never signed or been a party to. And these introduced multi-factor balancing tests, which basically, and this is the, the and this is what's happened in Europe. This is why I think our ancestors fled Europe, gives huge power to bureaucrats, unelected government officials to decide what you're allowed to say or not. Now, is this unique to Facebook, John? I mean, if you look at Google, if you look at Apple, you look at others, Amazon, similar, you know, large you know, tech tech giants are also involved in uh, social media platforms. Are they similarly governed or is this something that's uniquely Facebook? So this is the one thing I actually like about this whole affair is that at least here you're starting to see the beginnings of transparency. So say Facebook's a private company, they can do whatever the hell they want, right? They're just like, you know, someone shows up on Bill Whalen's, Bill Whalen's front yard with a sign. You can say, get the hell off my front yard, you bastard, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's your right as a, a private property owner. You know, Facebook so far has lived under the benefit of that same rule. They own the network, their private property. They can tell who to get on, who can come off on their property. But Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, as you said, 
they've been doing it in this non-transparent manner. They all have these sort of vague community guidelines. But really what it does is it concentrates power in these algorithms for one, or these you know, community mediators who are you know, non-unelected, they're just unchosen, they're just right employees of the company. I think they're given great authority to kick off people who they dislike. And you're starting to see that. You don't see a lot of cases of progressives and liberals being kicked off these platforms. You're hearing a lot of cases now of conservative voices being squelched. So at least what Facebook's done with this court is at least try to do, put out some kind of explanation, some kind of reasoning about why they kicked Trump off. So it's not just a yeah, we don't like Republicans or we don't like conservatives. We actually have principles that we're going to apply to both sides. Twitter and YouTube, no, no other social media companies, as far as I know, have done that. But I would expect other companies might actually be encouraged to do this and follow Facebook's example. All right, John, the second question here is what Facebook is doing to Donald Trump. Is it legal? Because it seems to me that if Facebook were to permanently ban him, he would promptly march into court and say that his First Amendment rights are being abridged, that he's being denied free speech. It's interesting, Bill. You're asking the $64,000 question. You know, After the inflation of the last few years, it's going to be the $64 million question. Uh-huh. Is what legally is Facebook? So up to now, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they've benefited from our analogizing it to private property. Right. Like a company or Bill Whalen, the private property owner, he gets to say, I don't have to let anybody on my front yard to speak, or I can let only Democrats speak on my front yard or Republicans or Christians or conservatives or liberals. Private pro- If you own the private property, you have complete control over who speaks on it or not. Uh, the government can't force you to allow speech if you don't want to. So Facebook just has the same kind of rights you and I would have. But that seems to be coming under a lot of pressure. So Justice Thomas, for example, in a case involving Twitter that the Supreme Court chose not to hear, this was the case where Donald Trump kicked Twitter followers off or tried to kick Twitter followers off while he was president. Uh, Justice Thomas said, these companies are not just private actors anymore. They've become so powerful. They're almost like monopolists in the way that control our speech. Uh And so- If that's the case, maybe we should treat them like what we call uh, in the law, quote unquote, common carriers. Uh, And these are uh, basically, I mean, they're kind of, it's hard to put exactly your finger on what they are now. But in the past, they used to be things like railroads or a bridge or utilities, right? Like the electric company, the water company, uh, they're privately owned in a way, but they can't discriminate who they choose to give electricity and water to. Uh, when you go on to a railroad or an airplane, they can't discriminate against you and say, we only carry liberals, we only carry conservatives, although conservatives don't believe in public transit, so we would never want to go on a train anyway. But right. he would, uh, you know, so Justice Thomas said, and this is, you could see the law, and I suspect the law will probably end up this way. You could see the law moving to treating these companies because they're so powerful, they're so monopolistic. In fact, what they're doing now is hurting their case by thereby they're flaunting their power. They're almost showing their monopolistic power in cases like the Trump Facebook case, that it's going to be easy. They're making it easy for their opponents. They're making it easy for the government to come in and say, you have become, you are like the railroads and the airplanes of the 21st century. 
John, you've been reading uh, up on Facebook and it's uh, and it's fine legal print. Um, question for you. Uh, if we were to have a legal trial, somebody's accused of homicide and you have a legal trial and they're accused of degrees of homicide. And if actually if the prosecution wants to go for the death penalty, it's very simple. They have to show special circumstances that warrant the death penalty. As you look at Facebook standards, John, is it clearly laid out as to what is a hanging offense in Facebook? In other words, what warrants a, a death sentence, if you will? That's part of the problem, actually, that the Facebook Supreme Court uh, suggested was, uh, okay, you've got these standards, you know, these community standards. The court treated them as fairly clear, although I think they're extremely vague. I'll explain why in a second. But the second thing that Facebook court said was the process. So it just shows why they were, they are a bunch of lawyers and politicians. What they really did at the end was said, but we want you to explain more. We want you to have some kind of process for explaining why Trump is going to be banned Mm-hmm. forever, perhaps, or why his ban is only for a short time, because there are a bunch of them wanted to ban him forever right. on this court. But the real problem, I think, is, and this, again, this is why I think Americans would be shocked if they actually read this opinion. You know, we could, I think if they, if the court had said, we're going to apply First Amendment law. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to be banned from Facebook if what you did would have violated the First Amendment. Right. If Trump had actually, and so with the Trump speech, there's a whole body of law about when is speech insightful such that it causes a threat of imminent harm that's going to cause death, serious bodily harm, and so on. Um, and there's even a Supreme Court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio. Most lawyers know this. It's called the Brandenburg Doctrine. That's not the law the Facebook court applied. If they had done that, I wouldn't, you know, who would have such problems with it? Instead, they applied a mishmash of treaties to which the United States has said, we're not going to go far as the Europeans, treaties where the Europeans have censored speech, right? They, they ban, for example, something called hate speech, which we do not think is a, a violation of the First Amendment here in the United States. Uh, they applied weird declarations by bodies of unelected non-governmental bodies that just declare on their own, we think these are good ideas, and then try to stick them onto treaties. They have I, they applied things which are foreign and alien to American law. So I think if you're an American and you're trying to figure out what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say, and you read this opinion, all you can do is say, well, maybe it's what they do in Europe, but in Europe, it's up to a bunch of you know bureaucrats in Brussels, it seems to decide, or it's up to you know a bunch of UN people in Geneva or New York. But this is why America has such a strong you know, environment for free speech that's lacking in Europe and always has been lacking in Europe compared to us. And it's European standards that we are bound by now through Facebook. Right. So Facebook has a 20-member Supreme Court. Boy, see the future on Capitol Hill. <laughs> well, you know, I, I assume the Democrats will want to pack that court and get it up to 30 or 40 members. There you go. Uh, <laughs> this is a good segue, John, I think, to get into uh, Twitter. Um, and I'm going to read you some language from Twitter now to, for our audience to fully understand. So here's what Twitter wrote. Quote, on January 8, 2021, President Donald J. Trump tweeted, quote, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have a giant voice, that's in caps, giant voice, long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Shortly thereafter, the president tweeted, quote, to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January the 20th. Here's then what Twitter added, John, quote, due to the ongoing tensions in the United States and an uptick in the global conversation in regards to the people who violently stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, 
Those two tweets must be read in the context of broader events in the country and the ways in which the president's statements can be mobilized by different audiences, including to incite violence, as well as in the context of the pattern of behavior from this account in recent weeks. Twitter then added John, quote, after assessing the language in these tweets against our glorification of violence policy, we have determined that these tweets are in violation of the glorification of violence policy and the user at real Donald Trump should be immediately permanently suspended from the service. So this is a good example of what you were just asking about. Uh, this, I don't think what Donald Trump said is a violation of the First Amendment. I don't, I won't put it differently. If the government were to suppress Donald Trump's speech, mm-hmm. that would be a violation of the First Amendment. The right. only kind of exception we allow in this kind of area is incitement to violence. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you notice the language you just read, like the Facebook language, uh, it's not about was there an imminent harm about to occur? What did Trump actually say at, on January 6th? Right? He said, you know, you have to keep fighting. But then he said, be peaceful. Right? Right. And there's actually a lot of arguments now about when did the attack on the Capitol actually start versus when was Trump uh, speaking? Right. If anything, I think what Trump did was a failure not to uh, was a failure to call out the military, to be more vigorous in stopping the riot once it had started. Uh, and, right. and, and I think that was actually whatever, I think that was impeachable grounds, but that's not related to his speech. That was just a failure to be president. Right. So uh, you, but if you read the language you said, it's all about context. When it's all about context, when it means everything counts, there's two problems. One is how does this Facebook court, how does Twitter, or how does Google actually know what the real facts are? I don't think they're sending lawyers on the ground to Washington, D.C. to collect evidence. They're not sending, we're not, they're not having a trial like we have to determine whether someone's guilty or not. They're just looking at their own, you know, they're just looking at the news and they're just sort of saying, oh, that's what must have happened. They're not really, connect- so that's one problem. Then the second problem is when you say it's all about the context and you have six factors or 10 factors, that gives enormous discretion to the censorers to do whatever they feel like. This has always been a problem. In fact, this is a, one of the big divides in law too, is it, once you make it about a totality of the circumstances is what we call in the law, you basically are making the law unpredictable, not transparent, and you are transferring huge amounts of power to the people who decide. And so it becomes a policy. Bill, you, you'd be a great lawyer. I mean, you missed your big career because your question goes to this fundamental problem in law is if you have this kind of rule, then you and me, the people have to live under the law. We can't predict with any certainty what we're allowed to do or not. We're just throwing our fates into the hands of these censors who work at Google and Facebook and Twitter. I would also think, John, if Facebook wants to spend its time deciding what is violence and what is not, uh, you can have a field day with that. Let's say John Yu puts on his finest hunting jacket and John Yu goes out and kills a deer. And it's deer season and it's legal, but John Yu then posts a photo on Twitter holding up a dead deer. That's an act of violence, right? Oh, yeah. Glorification of violence. Glorification of violence. So there you go. So you can, in theory, bounce John Yu for that. The Twitter saga with Trump continues, though, John. This week, a Twitter account reportedly created by the staff of the former president uh, has been suspended just a day after its creation. The account was uh, called at DJT Desk. Uh, that's at DJT Desk. It was believed to have been established to post statements from Mr. Trump to broadcast updates from his new website from the desk of Donald Trump. This is a blog that Trump has created mm-hmm. where he basically wants people to, to carry on his sauce because he can't tweet or post. Um, It's interesting. So here's what Twitter said about it, John. Quote, as stated in our, here's another policy, our ban evasion policy. 
as stated in our ban evasion policy, we'll take enforcement action on accounts whose apparent intent is to replace or promote content affiliated with a suspended account. Even though if you read the bio of the account, John, which appears to be created on Wednesday, it had this footnote, quote, not Donald, Day, not Donald J. Trump tweeting. So isn't that also show what's going on here, uh, Bill? It's not even uh, Trump himself that's the problem. It's his ideas that are right. the problem. So right. if you and I want it, apparently it seems like if you and I just thought, ah, Trump's a great guy, I'm just going to cut and paste off this web page that he's created and just dump them into my Twitter account. Eventually, I guess we would also fall prey to Twitter censors. And even though we were clearly not Donald Trump. And so that's what really worries me because that's the whole point of the First Amendment. We protect the speakers in part because we want to protect the free exchange of ideas. And I think Twitter there, it's a group, it's really a good point you make. They, they've laid bare that what they're really trying to do is go after the ideas, not just the speaker. That make, I, I, that's, that's an incredible power in the hands of companies. And when they do things like this, they are making it easy for, you know, my instinct is initially is their private property, let them do what they want. But they're almost inviting government regulation by being so flagrant in the way they're exercising their market power now. Right. Okay, John, let's now go to question number three, just really what legal recourses are there where we're going. It seems to me, John, this begins with one fundamental question when it comes to the likes of Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms. Are they private companies or are they public squares? Yeah. So this is, this is actually a really interesting point that um, Justice Thomas made in this case about Trump and Twitter. He said, uh, well, actually, so some of the judges wanted to treat Twitter like a public square. Right. And so they said, well, then Donald Trump can't kick followers off. He's the president. Right? He's speaking in the public square of Twitter. And so it was illegal for him. Oh, not illegal. It's a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, the First Amendment says when you when the government creates a public sphere, a public square, we call it a public forum in the law. They can't then pick and choose who's allowed to come into that public forum and speak. Um, there's a great case involving the University of Virginia a few years ago, where the University of Virginia uh, gave all the student groups money to speak, but then they wouldn't give money to religious groups. And the Supreme Court actually said that was unconstitutional. Right. So uh, the problem Thomas said pointed at Justice Thomas pointed out a really interesting point. He said. It, how could it be a public forum if Twitter could kick Trump off? If right. Twitter can Trump kick, kick Trump off, it can't be a public forum at all because we don't allow private companies to come in and shut down all the public squares in the country. So there's so this is the major point. So there's something contradictory about what is going on here, and that's why he called for a different approach. So I so Bill, I think like it, I think initially our legal system, in terms of remedies, is basically allowing. Twitter, Facebook, Google, to get away with it. Right. Because so John, they're not, operating under this paradigm, their private property. Right. John, I'm not going to do what men of my age do. Too often, I'm going to uh, refer to Animal House. Seeing <laughs> <laughs> an Animal House where the kid is on the bed. This is during the Fable, Faber College homecoming parade, and the kid is on his bed looking at the Playboy, and then this Playboy bunny uh, gets shot off a, a float and lands in his bed, and he looks up and he says, thank you, God. Uh, <laughs> playing the role of that kid right now is Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri. <laughs> he has written a book on the evils of big tech in this he land. Still, he still looks like that kid. <laughs> he does look that kid. Uh, Stanford 
Brad, by the way, we should point out. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, Josh Hawley's book cannot be more timely because we're getting this debate over big tech and Section 230 of the uh, Communications Decency Act. I want to read two sections to you, John, and then get your thoughts on this. So uh, here is what Section 230C1 states. It says, quote, a provider or user of an interactive computer service, e.g. an online platform or internet service provider, is not deemed to be, quote, the publisher or speaker of user-generated content. Then you go on to section C2 of, uh, of, of section 230, John, it states that, quote, provider or user of an interactive computer service should not be held liable where it voluntarily takes action, quote, in good faith to restrict access to or availability material that it considers to be, quote, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally projected. So, uh, so this is essentially, again, everything that's going on here is people trying to pick and choose from the past, mm -hmm. some way we've regulated big business or big companies or speech and kind of analogize it to this new digital world. It's in the world. It's not clear any of them will work perfectly. So basically what Section 230 there does is it tries to treat internet networks like newspaper publishers. So a newspaper publisher, right, he, he or she publishes op-ed opinions, letters to the editor, classified ads. And we don't, we didn't hold them liable for the speech of those people. And so this section 23 was an effort to kind of create that same regime. Think about it, it was a huge benefit to these companies when they were just starting out. And so it might've been good policy actually at the birth of the internet. Um, although, you know, the internet's also changing so quick, the companies that benefited at first are all gone, like Yahoo, AOL. <laughs> they were just sold for pittance or MySpace or companies like that. But you know, there are people who think this kind of immunity for internet networks was extremely valuable in getting the industry off the ground. That doesn't mean it should last forever. And so as you said, Josh Hawley, some other uh, conservatives are, uh, they're, they're uh, calling forth their inner Teddy Roosevelt, right? So because Teddy Roosevelt, he's a Republican, uh, but he's the big tr first big trust buster. Right. You know, he's the first one to say, you know, these railroads, these you know huge trusts, uh, we're going to have to regulate them, even though, you know, our private property instincts are to let them do the, what they want in the free market. And so you could see this kind of populist conservatism uh, that uh, you saw with Teddy Roosevelt is sort of coming back uh, to the public's uh, coming back to the fore, and people like Howley or Rubio, people like that, who are calling for regulation. Now, I bet this is maybe this is a radical claim, but I bet what's going to happen in the end, just like happened back then is that these companies are going to welcome and embrace regulation. They're going to want regulation because when a Facebook, they might say, okay, we are going to live under the world of common cares because then we won't be liable for all this stuff that's going on. And the government's going to basically pick us as the winners. And right. just like happened with regulation in the past, the regulation will become like a moat to defend us from the next upstarts. You know, we don't want to be Yahoo faced with the next Google. We just want to be the last one standing. And so actually maybe, you know, you want to be the water company, the electric company, rather than constantly fighting in the marketplace, you know, paranoid over who's going to come next with the next big idea that's going to take over uh, the internet. So you think the fix would come from Congress? The remedy would not come through the courts or through the Justice Department? No, I, I, I right. I think right now it's going to be uh, the government, uh, you know, Congress will pass some kind of 
a law, or it'll create enough cover for the courts to do it. So uh, right. what Justice Thomas is talking about, this common carrier idea, that could initially come about through the courts. Right. But the courts aren't really equipped to you know, move forward with all the kinds of questions and details that you would need to really have successful regulation. So look about what happened back in Teddy Roosevelt's day. Uh-huh. Uh, what Congress did, it created the Interstate Commerce Commission, and they created you know, the first administrative agency. And they're the ones who really sat down and started regulating rates and you know, conditions for carriage and all this kind of stuff. Congress isn't going to really pass. They don't want to pass a law that detailed. So they, you could see them, though. I, I would actually be worried about this. The libertarian in me is a little worried about this. I could easily see them creating some kind of Internet Commerce Commission and give them some broad grant of power. Facebook and Google, if they're smart, they're going to love this. And they're, you know, they're going to create the Iron Triangle and lobby the hell out of this agency and hire its employees and get favorable regulation that makes it hard to compete with them. Yeah. Uh, John, I want to point your attention to a court case here in California this week. Uh, it's a little, it's a bit of an oddball case, but I think it's a good example of how 230 comes into play in the courts. And this is a, a decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, out here in the Western U.S., the bane of uh, the Federalist Society existence. <laughs> yes. uh, it ruled on Tuesday, John, that Snap Inc., this is the Santa Monica-based company that runs Snapchat, mm-hmm. uh, it ruled that it must face a lawsuit uh, accusing it of causing a car accident that killed three teenagers because of a feature in the app that allows users to share photos or videos displaying the speed of their automobile. In other words, kids get onto mm-hmm. Snapchat and they start saying, hey, I'm going 100 miles an hour and going 120 miles an hour. And yeah. guess what? You know, allegedly, if you're doing this, you may be not attention, pay attention to what's going on in the road and I, smash. I, this is very strange. I'm old enough to remember where when I drive 100 miles an hour in the freeway, I don't want anyone to know. <laughs> now they want everybody to know, including the police, I suppose, are going to know. Which gets another question. Idea. How far away, which gets a question, how far away the, the McRib is that you're trying to get to? Miles an hour. <laughs> exactly. This case, John, it's called Lemon uh, with two M's, Lemon versus Snap. Uh, it was mm-hmm. filed after a 20 year old Snapchat user crashed his car while using the filter. Uh, at one point, he was uh, going over 120 miles an hour, and two of the victim's parents promptly sued Snapchat for wrongful death. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting here, John, is Snap said it was just providing a tool for you users to post their own content, an action which it says is mostly shielded under Section 230. And what the Ninth Circuit didn't rule on, uh, whether or not Snapchat was liable, but it concluded that it was not protected here by Section 230. Hmm. So this is interesting, Bill, because one thing that's starting to happen, I think, because of all the cases you've been talking about earlier, is you're starting to see conservatives and liberals become quite skeptical of section 230 now. And so this is a, this case you raise, it's an interesting case. It's a good example where a court, this court is reading section 230 pretty narrowly, you know, a more generous court like we've had in the past might've said, uh, anytime users are posting something on a network, it's right. It's just, it's uh, immune from litigation, at least against the network. But here you could say, I could see why the court might say, I don't, I don't think snap's going to, lose in the end, because even if they don't have the immunity, it's hard to show, I think, that Snapchat actually had anything to do with the accident, right? But at least what there's, the court here is saying, I think, is that this is not the same thing as a discussion board or mm-hmm. uh, you know, the comments section in an op-ed. This is, Section 230 doesn't co- immunize all interaction between right, the users and the network. If you're interacting in some other way that's not really speech, then perhaps the networks are going to be liable. So you know the thing when you mentioned this, the thing that occurred to me uh, is like video games, right? A lot, you know, big part of networks uh, 
and, and actually video games is network gaming where people play together. That, that to me is not section 230 protected uh, content, quote unquote. It's more like interaction. It's more, so this goes back to this earlier, long, actually earlier perennial fight in free speech law about what's speech and what's conduct. Uh-huh. Right? So right, demonstrations are speech, but you can't say all conduct is speech. So there's a famous Supreme Court case where burning a draft card uh-huh. is not considered protected speech, even though it was a protest. And so I would say that's what's going on here in this snap, although they don't think of it that way. I think that's going on is what really is going on here is not really speech at all. This is just people interacting with the video. It's conduct. Right. Um, and that's just not protected by Section 230. So I think that's going to, I think, again, it's a reaction. I think it, it, you're pointing to this sort of amazing power these companies have. Courts are at least going to read Congress's grant of immunity to them narrower and narrower as we go along. Mm-hmm. And the deeper we get into this, the more I feel like I'm stealing your law talk podcast from you. But uh, <laughs> no, so, no, 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 this is great. I mean, it's uh, this is so weird to have a law talk podcast without Richard to talk 45 <laughs> minutes out of the hour. <laughs> well, I could dial him in if you'd want to, but uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, don't do that. No, we, we, we love Richard Epstein. <laughs> yeah, we do. Richard, Richard's a wonderful man. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Sure. <laughs> it's the difference, it's the difference as simple as this, John. If I go onto a uh, social media platform and I ingest Tide Pods, which is not good for one's diet, not good for one's oh, health. Oh, oh, those yeah. detergent pods. Yeah, if yeah. I suck down those detergent pods and then some kid follows my action, is the carrier liable for that? Or conversely, what if I go onto my social media platform and say, John, you and all my loyal subjects eat Tide Pods? Is, <laughs> is there any difference between those? Yes, this, is, this, is, this might end up being a distinction. I think actually this is what the uh, internet networks are very worried about mm-hmm. is – uh, what if you see people doing dangerous things and they influence other people, right? That's right. Influencers are the big people who are making money on the internet right now. Uh, what happens when what people are doing is not considered speech? It's considered conduct. Do they lose, do the networks lose their immunity? Well, yeah, I just wanted to throw in one last point. It's not, you know, even though I'm not saying we shouldn't do this on Law Talk or have Richard around, but it's not actually clear to me that lawyers are the best people to make this decision, right? Your, your instincts are probably far more reliable than lawyers. This is a whole. This is an area of uh, the of complete, uh, completely po- the possibility of completely new kinds of regulation. And so, one thing I I am cautious about. It makes me worry a little bit about jumping to common carrier or jumping to let's treat them like utilities or let's sue them like they're antitrust violators of the robber baron years. Is that we're still, I think, relatively new in the in, in the information revolution. And the one thing you don't want to do is Section 230 does express this attitude. You really don't want to make a regulatory mistake that has the effect of really changing the nature of the industry in a negative way. So I would argue, and this goes back to your first questions about the Facebook court and regulation, is maybe that's what happened in Europe, right? Europe uh, has much stricter approaches to speech than we do in America. They don't have a Section 230. And you know what else Europe doesn't have? Uh-huh. They don't have any, you know, any significant computer hardware manufacturers. They don't have the PC industry. They don't have any great internet companies. I mean, Europe, I think, overregulated early on. They don't have a liberal approach to speech. Maybe it's no mistake that right, all the great internet companies, all the great tech companies are American for that reason. Right. But that's also what bothers me about Facebook is once they've benefited 
from the great liberties of, uh, that we guarantee in America and the United States to create their companies. Now they're turning their back on those very same standards in order to censor the people on their networks. You know, John, that's what I worry about is making the wrong choice so early that we happen to, we might squelch innovation. You know, one thing that uh, comes to mind, John, is the uh, tax reform effort in the 1980s, uh, the famous uh, showdown at Gucci Gulch, as the, the oh, book yeah. goes, yeah. where you had a real massive attempt at tax reform and it became just a lobbyist free for all in the halls of Congress. Yep. Uh, but here's the point. If you're going to go after Section 230 and really revisit tech, this is not going to be thought of by a bunch of senators and members of Congress, John, because what do we see every time there's a hearing on this stuff? Members don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there was a famous hearing. I think it was Senator Ted Stevens who said, the Internet's just pipes. It's just pipes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember watching, I think the last time I saw some of these tech titans go up on the hill, it's very clear the senators just don't yeah. understand the platforms. And I don't think they necessarily understand the technology. I'm thinking of uh, lawmakers who in a past life might have held up a mouse in the air and started clicking it, saying nothing's happening. But uh, <laughs> so it seems to me, John, that this is going to be driven by two groups of people. Number one, who you mentioned, lobbyists in Washington. But secondly, people like you were in a past life, aides on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So mm-hmm. who are these young lawyers working in the Senate Judiciary Committee? And are they future John Hughes? Or is there anything <laughs> about their technology that we should be looking at? Oh, God, I don't know if I would trust my 26-year-old self to regulate the internet. <laughs> so I, it's, it's a great question. So one thing that we've seen in politics and policy, right, the name of your podcast, right, Policy right. and Politics Before, is that when Congress is faced with really hard questions of a technical nature, they try to get out of it by delegating huge power to the administrative agencies. And then they win either way, because if the agency makes a mistake, they go on TV and beat the hell out of the agency. And if the agency does it well, they say, look, I created that agency in the first place. Uh, and then there's you know, what we call the iron triangle that's established between Congress, congressional committees, lobbyists, and the big business that kind of control the agency and get it to do actually very pro- I mean, it looks like they're regulating. They usually end up doing, they become what we call captured by big business and this, you know, interlocking group of personnel that move between the Senate Judiciary Committee and then business and then the executive branch. So you, I think the, if the story ends badly, it will end up becoming like that. It'll end up following this pattern. Um, But it could be different. It could be the case that uh, younger people you know, the 26-year-old staffer like I once was on the Senate Judiciary Committee, they understand technology better than their elders, right? They grew up with it, right? People who are 26, they've had email and the internet their whole lives, right? They're, they don't need to analogize to the past the way you are and I am to well, these old models because that's what we grew up with. They might have better, they might think of better approaches. That's one. The second thing is it may be the case that uh, government as we have it today. So this is this is actually a thing I've worked on for a long time, is you know we have a government that was really established, a model of government that's established out of the Industrial Revolution. Right? We have the government of FDR. FDR could come back today and the government would look this and he could run this government. Right? There's right. nothing really different about it now than it was back then. The economy and society are increasingly different from the Industrial Revolution. We're living through the digital revolution. So mm-hmm. things are much more decentralized. It may be the case that the way the government is set up can't handle. Like, that's what it seems like to me. That's so like when you say, well, these senators have these hearings. They have so many things to worry about. They can't. You're right. I actually I asked Senator Hatch, who I worked for, you know, what it was like being senator. And he said, you know, you're a mile wide and an inch deep. You have to have an opinion on everything, but you don't have the time to have a really deep opinion about any single thing. And I think that was really 
uh, true. And so if that's the case, our Congress is not designed to really produce really deep, meaningful understanding and regulation of issue. What I would do if I were them, this would require a change in the way Congress is set up, but there's so much money at stake, they might well do it, is to create some internal congressional agency like the GA, well, the GA is kind of like one, or the budget, the budget people, create a, a separate agency within Congress to really take hold of regulation and figure out the way to approach this rather than following the old industrial era of delegate lots of authority to an independent agency and just let them do it and we'll take all the credit. So I'll just give you the counterexample. The way it could go is like the tax code, not everyone's favorite subject. Right. That's not an area where Congress leaves it up to this agency to decide. Congress wants to be in charge of taxes because that's real money. And so if there's going to be favors handed out in the tax code, they want to do it. And so there might be so much money at stake, Congress isn't going to let this one out of their hands. Yeah. So, John, I have a very good friend in Washington uh, who um, went to Harvard Law School. I hate to say not Yale Law School, but Harvard Law School. And, <laughs> so he, uh, real, he learned real law. <laughs> he learned real law. And he, uh, he works in a private firm in D.C., and his specialty is SEC law. Oh. And uh, this is very lucrative. Because- Every Harvard Law grad deserves to have to work on SEC law. Exactly. Uh, his business is lucrative. And as he explained to me one time, because I'm not going to begin to try to understand the nuances of SEC law, he said basically his job settling. And by that, he mm-hmm. means that a company has been caught with the goods. They've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar and they know they've had it. And so basically his job is to work with the Justice Department and come to a settlement, just saying, okay, how do we how do we get yeah. this through in, in a reasonable amount of time? I ask this because, John, I'm looking at the tech companies right now. And you know, I don't know if the writing is on the wall, but this is not going in a good place for them. Um, and right, but right now in Washington, they have a lineup where they may have a friendly administration. They may have a friendly Congress. Why wouldn't you, along the guise of that SEC attorney, yeah. why wouldn't you kind of think about settling right now? Make or a deal. I, or, mm-hmm. am I, or am I wrong in presuming that a Biden administration and a Democratic-controlled Congress right now, if you want to call it that, would be friendlier than a Republican presidency and a Republican Congress or are Democrats is mad about this as uh, Republicans are? You're, you're, you're the expert on this. This is a real conflict, I think, for both parties in terms of their short-term political tactics versus yeah. their sort of long-term ideological commitments. Because I think Democrats ideologically have been the ones against big business, right? They're the ones they say they're against concentrations of wealth. Well, where is the most wealth concentrated in this country right now? Yes. Uh, one of my economist friends uh, said uh, you know, about the Bay Area for the last 30 years, he said, Uh, This has been the greatest creation of wealth concentrated in the smallest place in the shortest period of time in the history of mankind. Right. And that's Congress ain't going to leave its mitts off of that for very long. This will get into your law talk more, but is this really ill-gotten gains? And let me say this disclosure here right now. I'm talking to you over an Apple laptop. I own stock in Apple company, full disclosure. But it's not like Apple went out, John, and suddenly tripled the price of their laptops thinking, hot damn, everybody is locked up. They got to use our laptops. It's not they like they created stuff you wanted and made things cheaper and, well, in fact, set things free. They, they benefited <laughs> from societal change driven by government policy. But yeah. I ask this question because because, you know, there are Democrats who give a lot of lip service to big tech. Uh, Nancy Pelosi says she's no fan of big tech, but I haven't seen her push any legislation trying to drop a bomb. You do see legislation by Democrats wanting to go after the likes of Amazon getting back to trust busting. But here, John, I think you're looking at a real political hornet's nest because I think I've not seen any surveys on this, but I'm guessing most people like Amazon very much. And if you mess with Prime and you mess with their ability to get stuff reliably and cheaply, you're, you're in for a world of hurt as a politician. 
Yeah. So, but part of it's also these companies are you know, doing kind of what Democrats would like them to do, right? They're attacking, you know, they're censoring Donald Trump. They're, uh, so, you know, Democrats, and this is, you see this in college campuses too. Sometimes liberals are not so liberal when it comes to things like speech <laughs> or a diversity of ideas and so on. So right. I'm, I'm, I agree with you in the sense that I'm not so sure uh, whether uh, progressives or liberals have figured out their own attitudes towards big tech because their previous attitudes would have been very suspicious of companies that have this much wealth and power. Um, at the same time, in the short run, tactically, they kind of grew that. And then I, I agree also, you, the way you put it actually, I think, creates even a greater dilemma for conservatives because it's the conservatives you would think would like that story of Amazon Prime bringing down prices, making and, or Google giving away information for free, for example, or YouTube allowing people to freely post videos and so on. Although it's not all free, it's really it comes at the cost of your privacy. But right. it, it, you're, you know, you're getting information for things that are valuable for very low cost. So conservatives generally, you know, believe in the free market, believe where if companies are producing things that people want at low price, why should the government get involved? Isn't government always going to make things worse than the way the free market, uh, the way the free market will uh, produce it? So they're, you know, the, but, but in the short term, conservatives are getting screwed by all these companies <laughs> politically. And so they have this, they have to resist the temptation to engage in over-regulation right now. Because I think in the longer term, then what's the what are the conservative principles that they still believe in? I just think, John, if I'm big tech, I'm almost thinking, thinking along the lines of locking in a profit, if you will. Yeah. And I'm, I'm I don't predict, I don't like to predict the political future. Gosh knows I was wrong at every step of Donald Trump along the way. Consistently, we don't, so. were you really? I don't, I don't oh, remember oh, that. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> were you really? Oh, yeah. Look, I, I would have, I would have told you with certainty in the summer of 2015 it was all a bluff. He's just trying to get more money out of NBC for the Apprentice. Well, that's true. Uh, <laughs> well, it was true. <laughs> I would have told you that after a couple months on the trail and realizing he had to spend money, once somebody else brought up immigration, he'd drop out of the race. Wrong. <laughs> I would have told you he would have got sick of it after getting beat up in a couple of debates. Wrong. I would have told you the good people of Iowa and New Hampshire would have kicked him to the curb. Wrong. <laughs> I would have told you uh, eventually Democrats, Republicans would have rallied around one uh, one opponent to him. Wrong. Um, he would have been denied at the convention. Wrong. <laughs> he'd lose to Hillary. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And I even took it out and uh, before the panic, I said there's a good chance he may not run for re-election. So wrong every time. But again, getting back to big tech, though, John, I just wonder, you know, again, not to be a prognosticator, but, you know, let me take you to January of 2025 and a newly sworn in President DeSantis, who is on Tucker Carlson a lot, and he's bashing big tech constantly in his state. Uh, he oh, yeah, and he's trying to create a exactly. cause of action to sue right. them. And he and a Republican Congress now run Washington. Boy, if you know, going after big tech is not SB1 and HR1, it's going to be pretty high up on the hit list. So again, I wonder if your big tech, maybe right now is not a bad time to try to push this along. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Bill. I think if you look at historical examples of the government approach to big business, when you have a new form of technology approach, you know, the big one was industrial revolution and transportation and communications at the turn of the 20th century. Big business figured out at some point that regulation was actually good for it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the problem is that they might not see it that, you know, they might not think that way. They always, and this is true. Don't you think of these uh, sort of internet people? They think they're different, right? They, 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 they have this idea they're disruptors. So why should the normal rules of politics and policy apply to them? But if they were smarter about it in their look in their own naked self-interest, this is not necessarily in the nation's interest, but in their own naked self-interest, they would want regulation. 
it seems to me that is the way you put it, because they that kind of influence insulates you from the up and down of politics too right if you have the if you're regulated by the fcc you're you're the networks you don't have to worry too much about who's in control of Congress from year to year because the FCC is really who you deal with and they're there all the time and you know them and they have a great grant of authority under the Federal Communications Acts to regulate you. This, this is not a bad model for Facebook or Google uh, you know, to live under the protection of that kind of umbrella. So I agree, I agree with you. Maybe that's what they're going to come to sooner rather than later. I want you to show off your big constitutional brain. How many amendments are there in the Constitution? <laughs> going to the book <laughs> well you know you you would think that people wouldn't know that but i actually have the federally approved version right here and so i can say it's 27 because i just turned to the page well done i can even tell you the last one without having to look which is about congressional pay because yeah. that was the most interesting one because if i remember correctly, that one was actually proposed back at the time of the founding and it took basically 200 years for the states to all collectively add up enough vote. And so there was this interesting question, constitutional question faced by the Clinton administration, which was how long does an amendment that's proposed hang out there? And how long is a, good, a state's vote good for? And the Clinton administration, you know, the, the Supreme Court never reviewed this. This was up to the archivist of the United States, basically, um, taking advice from the Justice Department. And they decided all those votes from the, from the 1790s on, we're still good. And this amendment, which was, I think it was a proposed as, I thought it might've been proposed as part of the Bill of Rights, in fact, was actually good enough okay. to be added back in the 1990s. So this is my question. It's the final one of this podcast, John. Um, of those 27 uh, amendments to the constitution, which one is under the most stress right now? Is it the first, the second, the 10th, or is it an amendment I'm missing? Oh, that's a good question. So- I think it's still the first because think about what has the first has in it. it doesn't just have speech, which is the source of all of these issues you and I are talking about. It also has religion in there, right? So think about all the fights we're having about a religion. And then it also has assembly and petition. And most people think the first amendment, and this is, goes to your point. The reason why it's under such stress is because uh, the first amendment is thought to create guarantee those rights, which we need even to have politics. Right. And so, we, if we are entering this polarized age, um, and we are entering also this age of, I hate to say this sort of critical race theory and sort of the reduction in diversity of thought in a lot of our institutions, well, you're going to, right, that's almost a fight over the ground rules of politics to me, and like speech, like religion, like press and assembly. And so, to, uh, sadly, I wish it weren't the case, but I think the First Amendment is the one that's most under attack right now. That's what I thought, too. Oh, really? Oh, good. I thought you were going to say, no, no, you're wrong. It's the Third Amendment because the government wants to quarter troops in all our houses. <laughs> well, the First Amendment seemed the obvious choice, but I was just kind of curious. There was a sleeper amendment out there, but this time the obvious was right. Okay, John, so a year from now, are we still talking about Donald Trump being banned off of Facebook? Or do you think he is back on Facebook, or has he found uh, an alternative to Facebook and Twitter? Well, I, I think Facebook, based on what that opinion said, I, I think Facebook could easily ban him forever. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure this actually hurts Trump, <laughs> right? It's sort, of, it's sort of like, as you're saying, the Josh Hawley receiving the Playboy bunny from heaven. Exactly. You know, this keeping this is this big tech fight is keeping Trump alive in our politics. Keeps, keeps him in the news and allows him yeah. to be a martyr. And he's the victim, right? And like America, like, you know, 
people who don't support him still or might support him on this one. Uh-huh. So, I, yeah, we'll still be talking about Trump a year from now. I don't think he's going to be back on Twitter and Facebook. I also don't know if they're alternatives because, as you and I have been talking about, the great power of these monopolies uh, is probably suppressing alternatives. And so I don't think Trump's really able to find uh, an alternative network that's going to be as powerful as YouTube and, right, and Facebook and Twitter. Well, and then if he tries an alternative network, isn't he now in the parlor situation where he is, you know, looking at getting banned from the likes of, you know, Apple, for example? Yeah. So I think it's, I, I don't see um, how he can replicate the reach he used to have when he was on all those social media platforms. That's different than us talking, you know, we're still going to be talking about him. We're still going to be talking about the power of these networks. That's not going to go away. Exactly. Uh, and certainly not by the time of the House election. And unfortunately, I mean, this is the, the bottom line. These companies, again, they have become so hubristic. They are censoring, right? They're not just censoring Donald Trump. They're censoring our Hoover colleague, Scott Atlas. They're Hoover, you know, they're, they're because he, you know, raised doubts about the lockdown. They are censoring ideas, not just people. And that's what's causing, is going to cause more and more efforts to regulate them. Okay. And I'll add, there's one more question. Um, how soon before the next Supreme Court fight? Oh, I mean, uh, you, you, oh, you, you, you must get up every day twisting and <laughs> flexing and getting into shape for a million Fox appearances because you just know <laughs> there's going to be one between now and the midterm election. Wait, wait, what are you talking about? I'm getting I'm flexing for my own nomination to the Supreme Court. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. So, no, I think so. I think uh, Justice Breyer. Yeah. What's interesting is, you know, uh, the liberals are placing a lot of pressure on Breyer to retire. In fact, they actually. I think rented a truck with a billboard and drove it around the Supreme Court a few weeks ago saying Briar retire. And, and it's and that's hashtagged all over Twitter. Yeah. Which is the best way to make sure Briar stays in office and doesn't retire because the last thing he wants is to make it look like he was politically pushed aside. What's On the other hand, I think he will retire while Biden's president. Well, this happened in 2014 with uh with Justice Ginsburg, where uh yep. people approached her and said, you know, now's not a bad time. And what they were thinking was the Senate's gonna flip here before you know it, and we're gonna lose a chance to put another judge on. And, and they right. were right. <laughs> yeah, she had a two-word response, and it was not Merry Christmas. So <laughs> <laughs> but I don't but I don't know if he's the same uh, kind of ilk. I mean, she really, I mean, that job was really, you know, she lost her husband. That job was her life. I mean, she loved being and she was being a, she was just dug she into was Washington. The ceiling breaker, right? She was she the was. first of her kind. Yeah. And it's like watching Diane Feinstein here in California. You know, there's hmm. kind of I an ilk of people about that. Kind of an ilk of people who leave, you know, leave their job one way. And that's what I hate to say, but on a shield feet first. Yeah. Uh, so so Briar, think, you're right. Briar is not like that. Briar, you know, it's funny. Briar is uh He's a moderate Democrat, though. He's, you know, yeah. he's not a woke justice. He's a Clinton appointee, right? Yeah, he's a Clinton appointee. You know, and he people forget, you know, he also was general counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he was a great Harvard law professor. And his, you know, the thing he was most in favor of was rational regulation, balancing costs against benefits. This is like a heresy now in the progressive world. And so I don't, and yeah, you may know Justice Breyer just gave a speech at Harvard Law School saying, right. don't mess with the structure of the Supreme Court. Right. He sort of gave the back of his hand to these people demanding court packing. And so does a guy like that want to retire under the pressure of the woke progressive left? I would think not. I would think so. I think they've actually successfully delayed his retirement. Maybe we'll be talking about him a year from now, but I bet he's not going to retire this summer. Yeah, I just think between now and the 2022 election, uh, given the age, given the political pressure, the timing couldn't be better. And frankly, to be cynical about this, if well, if you're looking to turn out a Democratic basis, we're in court fights, not a bad way to go. So yeah, next year. 
again. Yeah. See your future a year from now. <laughs> I actually look, I, I just want to say, I don't know if even Breyer thinks that way. He's, I have a lot of admiration for him, actually. I think he's a, a really brilliant guy. And I think the reason the woke don't like him and want him off the court is because he's not a woke justice. And he's a, he's like someone, you know, conservatives can, we disagree with him a lot, but I respect his work, his work, which is not true of every judge. I might say, John, you enjoyed the conversation as always. And, uh, you know, you're on this podcast a lot because there's always something legal. It seems to talk about good time to be a lawyer. No, <laughs> and it's never a bad time. At least that's what my parents taught, told me when they made me go to law school. <laughs> Okay, John, thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you again. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our show. Tell your friends to have a listen if you wouldn't mind. We'd sure appreciate it. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast, and that is www.hoover.org. Uh, do yourself a favor. Go to it and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of John Yu and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.